0: back to another episode of Fun Views Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Pops. Today's guest is Levi Benkert. Levi grew up all over the world, traveling with his family focused on missionary type work. He flipped his first house as a teenager and started a small chain of coffee shops in Sacramento before scaling up his real estate business. 2008 hit both his business and his personal life quite hard, and Levi and his family moved to Ethiopia to start an orphanage for children coming from extremely difficult situations. Over six years, he actively worked on the nonprofit and built up several other large businesses in the country and surrounding region. Subsequently, he moved back to the United States and settled down in Austin, Texas. He stepped back from the nonprofit finally and sold the businesses in order to launch Harbor Capital, an investment firm focused on industrial real estate opportunities. This episode is brought to you by FundViews Capital, a full service end to end fund management platform. For asset managers and financial advisors to launch and operate their own private investment funds. Levi, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy day and, you know, taking a trip down memory memory lane.
1: Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. This is fun.
0: So to start, maybe tell me a little bit about your early days where you grew up and if there's any sort of um, you know, people or or things that happened that kind of stick out in your mind that make you kind of different or put you through, you know, the early days into finance and investing?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a a really kind of non-traditional family. We traveled all all over the place. I lived in Brazil, Taiwan, Philippines, Hong Kong, Canada, kind of just all over. Uh, My parents were, basically worked for this uh, missionary organization. And so they would basically, you know, just kind of travel all over the place and I was kind of <laughs> towed along for the ride. And but but I feel like that gave me this kind of early on, just different look and and maybe even an understanding that kind of the, the things that we think of as rules kind of many of them, you know, obviously laws are laws, but the things that we think of a kind of social construct rules in, in our country might not always Apply, because in different countries, they think about it too, super differently. And so I feel like that gave me this kind of just different perspective that I took on into life.
0: Yeah, I, I totally understand that. And it's, it's funny because, um you know, when I was in high school, I went to a Catholic school for like two years. And I was part of a missions trip where we went to Mexico. I uh, mm-hmm. went to Cuernavaca. Yeah which is a small kind of area outside Mexico City. We were there for like 10 days. We had to raise all the money by like delivering phone books, yellow page phone books, like for like 50 cents a piece, like things like that. We just had all these fundraisers and and bank right. sales and things. And uh, for a year, and then we went on this trip and all the money we raised, we basically used to help build a roof for a family it was like a single mm-hmm. mom with seven kids living on it in dirt floors with cardboard roof and you know we built them a new roof did some other things like that It was an eye-opening experience right and i'm sure that's kind of part yeah. of what you saw growing up and it definitely even today like it definitely changed who i am
1: hmm, yeah for sure And that weird how yeah kind of getting outside your comfort zone is so incredibly helpful and that, that just sticks with you at last
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that you aren't motivated or you, or you, you know, change in certain ways, but at the end of the day, definitely, I think the biggest number one thing that it did was make me constantly grateful for, for what I have. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really number one. Yeah. So when, and how did you um, become interested in finance investing? That's kind of, you know, I don't want to say it's opposite of philanthropy, but uh, (laughs) you know, they, they do go hand in hand, but you know, the, the stigma of, investing in finance is not really philanthropy
1: yeah for sure man i started young so i i literally took my ged when i was 15 uh, never went back to school and and started right away i flipped my first house when i was 18 i started a, a coffee shop got married really young my wife and i started a coffee shop ended up starting a second location and then sold off both of them so really had first not not enormous by any stretch, but first successful exit when I was 19 mm-hmm. years old, and wow. it's like okay, this is this is something I really enjoy and like doing. How can I go do you know more of this? And so really, then just kind of turned around and, and doubled down on on flipping houses. I mean, real estate was was so much fun. I did I would do all the work myself to kind of go in and remodel these houses six, seven weeks, I was done. It was back on the market and often would make, you know, over $100,000 in profit on something that I just, you know, bought well, yeah. designed it well and sold it well. It, it worked out really, really good. <laughs> and so, That's yeah, great. I just got, got the bug
0: early and got to work. So wh- wh- where was that? Was that the coffee? Sh- where was the coffee shops located in, at the time? In
1: Sacramento. So it was all in Sacramento. kind of midtown, downtown Sacramento area. Yeah.
0: California. Interesting. And, and and that was obviously before 2008 and 09 kind of financial crisis, right?
1: Yeah. So that was, we got married in 99. And so that was kind of 2000, 2001 started doing that. And then one of the houses I bought, we ended, we actually moved into this really, really nice house in West Sacramento. It was, it was the most expensive house that had ever sold in the city at the time, Um, but it had some extra land on it. And so I recognized that the seller basically wasn't valuing the land correctly Hmm. when, bought the property, split it up into to five lots instead of one, and then sold the lots off really for the same amount of money that we paid for the house. Wow. And then we sold the house for the same amount of money that we bought all of it for. And so, I mean, this was a 15-month kind of start to end project because it took a, quite a while to get the, the split done. But I mean, we ended up making, I think it was like $850,000 on that deal wow. in, in 15 months. And I was 23, 24 years old at
0: the time. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it, right? And, it, you know, yeah. the ease of getting getting mortgages at the time, I'm sure, helped. Yeah, that's right. You know, oh, that that kind a of country,
1: stuff. The countrywide mortgage, fully stated income. I mean, what was wrong with them, right? Loaning, yeah. loaning that much money to somebody my age. To eighties.
0: a 23-year-old, right? Yeah. But, I mean, exactly. it, it allowed you to, to, to do it you know what you otherwise couldn't have done right access yeah. to credit is is something that you know we take for granted right even though it's harder these days to get a mortgage but yeah you know my wife and i are closing out a house now it's like it's a bit of uh jumping through different hoops but at, at the end of the day yeah there's a lot of countries out there that don't have access to like people don't have access to credit the same way we do
1: right right yeah that's true
0: yeah, like um, one one of the sure. funds we're um we're we're structuring at FundViews now is um is a Jamaican equipment finance fund lending to farmers in Jamaica. Wow. So it's like it you know very impact yeah. oriented, but we're lending to these farmers, and um, the farmers cannot get in Jamaica that the banks in Jamaica will value tractors, which is considered specialized equipment, at zero dollars in collateral. So you can't get a collateralized right. loan by tractors. They have to put up wow. land or they have to buy it in cash. And, yep. you know, that's something that, you know, we take for granted here.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's funny. It's hard to, in countries like that, it's hard to collateralize something that could walk off.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going yeah. anywhere. so They
1: know they can loan on it, but equipment. Can yeah. just
0: <laughs> exactly. You're right. I mean, there's challenges with that too. And obviously, you know, Jamaica is not the United States by any means. There's actually a really cool company called Hello Tractor that, Puts the, builds these GPS devices that you can put in the tractors that add like GPS, geofencing, you have mm-hmm. a kill switch as the, as a lender, we can shut them off and go take them back if they oh, stop wow. paying. So, yeah. so it's neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, yeah. You know, you, you never went back to school. You just got your GED and, and jumped in. Yeah, so after selling
1: that house, I realized that I really enjoyed this process of splitting up land. And so then, I mean, it just, turned it up to 10 started buying land uh, kind of all over uh, the sacramento valley and and would go through the process of going you know buy the land raw or maybe with a property with a house on it that we would tear down bought some old trailer parks and and paid the tenants to move and bought their old trailers from them and moved them into apartment buildings then rezone and just add a tremendous amount of value you know we'd buy something that was R2 zone for maybe, you know, three to five houses per acre. And the city was in the process of, of, you know, putting a new master plan together. And so whenever we'd come with this vision of, hey, what, well, what this neighborhood could be, they were thrilled to, to work with us. And so something that maybe could have been seven houses, we were, we were turning it around turning it into a 40 home or 50 unit. So just wow. an enormous value increase. And so it did that and, Terrence sold a lot of those, sold off uh, properties to KB Homes and Lenar and the big builders for years, which is just this. I mean, it was exciting. I was still very young. 20, this was like 23 to 27. Had a team of 25 people, actually bought a home building company and brought them in house and brought their whole team in house and started building houses all the way right up until 2008.
0: <laughs> yeah. Get to that in a minute. But yeah. what was the learning curve like? you know obviously you're 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 very young but you're very I want to say world traveled and understood right. a lot of the you know learned as you go a lot of the pieces but in terms of splitting up properties is that like a specialty that you know even now you kind of have over other other groups
1: yeah I'm, I'm still always interested I actually bought a property six months ago that we split a lot off and are now selling selling off vacant land. So I I always kind of enjoy that play because it's often something that's undervalued and and the split process is not that complicated, even though it might seem daunting. But yeah, you know, honestly, to answer that question, I certainly some downside. I mean, when I look at my kids, I'm like, you're going to college.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Definitely are. But for me, I, I basically just always knew that that I could hire people that were smarter than me because I felt like the dumbest guy in the room and am okay playing that role and i'm much rather you know my my position is better as the person who's kind of playing the orchestra is looking at all the mm-hmm. different players and saying hey you're much better at this than i am let me tell you kind of what type of music we're, we're making together and you do your part you know you you play the drums back here and you get us going in, the, in this right direction and so it's it's kind of ended up being a little bit of a superpower it's similar to you know I don't know if you've read Richard Branson's books, but he talks about being you know, pretty extremely dyslexic and how that's just kind of made it to where he's like, there's certain things I can't do, yeah. but there, there are people who are much smarter. And so there's a kind of a curse I feel like that happens when you're kind of come up th- through the ranks as a, you know, go to business school, become an analyst and do all these things Is you know how to do all this stuff. So you might as well sit down and do it all. Where to me, it's like, hey, I know that there are people that are much smarter than me. I'm going to go get the best of the best. And I'm going to inspire them as to where we can go as a company. And so even like, I was often the young, both the youngest person in the room as well. Almost all the employees I hired were much older than me. But just had this, you know, have always had this ability to create a really inspired team of people who love the work that they do and are bought in and like, willing to do whatever it takes to get us collectively towards the goal that that we've set for ourselves
0: it's really interesting right because I was thinking of that the other day where you know age when you when you become an entrepreneur you know and I feel like if you're very young like you were people have a tendency to trust you more almost because they see you almost as like a prodigy kind of whether it's yeah. warranted or not right that's that's yeah. the mentality once you get to you know, 35, 40, 45 years old, you're in that in-between where people say, well, you know, they, they're not, they waited a while and now they're on their own. And do I, do we go with them? Do we not? And then right. there's the other extreme where they're 65 years old and very experienced and they trust them again. So it's sort of like yeah. this weird like bell curve. Yeah. Uh, kind of like reverse bell curve. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, where, you know, you either have to jump in early in your career or or, mm-hmm. or late you know, generally. I mean, it's not, that's not a rule by any means, but that's just what I, you know, when I think through kind of founders and entrepreneurs and what they've done and the most successful ones, it's usually one or the other.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So what, so what happened? How was your business affected by 2008? Obviously, you know, you're in the
1: devastating. I, I, I would look back to it. There was a, a middle Eastern group that came in and found out about the portfolio that I had. It was 2007, I had 400 lots that we were no longer selling to the builders, we were going to build ourselves. So these were either single family or multifamily lots. And it was all for sale products. So it was condo or, you know, uh, attached townhomes. And so we we were building kind of 2007, uh, had built a dozen and sold how, you know, sold many of the houses. And then a lot of the properties were Curb gutter, sidewalk, storm drain, utilities, offsite utilities—all of these things were happening. So we had a, a you know team working on financing and getting construction loans, and all of this stuff was moving forward. But you know, other than the half a dozen or so houses that had sold already, there was no cash flow coming in from these. These were the, all of these properties were you know we were spending, spending, spending until we could build and sell. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, there's all kinds of people saying the writing was on the wall, and we should have seen it coming, but. You know, the banks basically just stopped lending to us. They said, "Hey, look, the market's dropped," and it didn't. You know, there's no doubt it had a home that you could sell for six hundred thousand dollars is now four fifty or four hundred, if that, and you might not even be able to find a buyer because nobody's buying, right? Well, especially yeah. in California, there was so much artificial demand. You know, it was a, a janitor who was buying his fourth house to rent, but really, he was just. Buying it for appreciation, you know, for planned appreciation that wasn't happening anymore, and so these things didn't cash flow, <laughs> you know, and so I mean, I was stuck in the worst worst case scenario, and so I, you know, had I sold, we would have walked away with forty million dollars for all those properties, and all the investors mm-hmm. that I had would have been really happy, but um, didn't sell in two thousand seven, held on to through two thousand eight, and ended up, I mean, just devastating. It was a bunch of short sales, and uh, you know, it was a really painful process on top of it, uh, you know, thankful that my wife stuck with me, but, uh, you know, personally, it was really rough as well. My just best friend and partner who I'd worked with in the business for many years, I ended up not able to pay his salary, had to lay him off. He went home and had a liver condition that really just flared up through the stress. And he died four days after I laid him off. Wow. Left a wife and two kids, and I mean, I was like, I did that. You know? Oh my god! And then my, uh, within two weeks of that happening, my brother, who had just really been struggling in life for years, committed suicide, and it was just this oh like, oh my god, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I felt completely ill prepared to take on all of those challenges. you know. Meanwhile, literally in the weeks, this, those were the same weeks that I was calling investors and saying, hey, we're doing a short sale. The bank's not getting all their money back. And that certainly means you as an equity investor aren't getting your money back. But man, looking back, I am just so incredibly thankful for... Actually, it was mostly the investors that I worked with that ended up stepping up and helping. I mean... It's a guy actually, I actually was just emailing with him this morning who was one of the biggest lenders that I, or one of the biggest invest equity investors that I work with at the time. He had $5 million or something tied up in those properties, most of which was a complete loss. He became a mentor, friend, walked me through that process, helped me, you know, encouraged me about how to communicate. I mean, here I was 27 years old. I felt just completely out of my depth. It was like, I had no idea what, you know how bad it could get. <laughs> yeah, Many of those investors are still working with me today, funding the projects that I'm doing. You know, not that, not that everybody, I mean, some people were just frustrated and I never heard from them again, and rightfully so. But gosh, in looking back, so much of who I am today is because of how hard that process was, the kind of self-exploration that I did through that. And then the investors and mentors and friends that came around me and just made it possible to move forward.
0: Yeah, that's definitely and it an, sounds like a very 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 tough time. Like most people will never have it, have something like yeah. that in their entire life, right? And it's Yeah. I don't know if it made made you feel more even more grateful at the end of the day, but it, I'm sure it wasn't easy for a long time, you know, yeah. getting through that. So what happened to the business? I mean, the the investors generally, you know, lost a lot of money, but you know, the business kept going or did you take a break and and no, stop? Wrapped,
1: I mean, wrapped up it certainly
0: it just wiped, yeah, wiped out, yeah, essentially.
1: To continue to move on with developing. My wife and I said, this was really my wife's idea was, let's go do something different for a little while. And so I mean, the plan was maybe six months or a year, but we moved to Ethiopia. Yeah. <laughs> Making it a short-term thing. Uh, we had heard of a, a situation. This was after everything was all kind of wrapped up and put to bed. And, you know, there was, there was nothing to do next. And we were having these discussions about what are we going to do with our life now? do I start another business? You know, it was, there was kind of no fallback plans. This is what, you know, and, and we'd, whatever money we had made on, cause I had sold a bunch of properties, we sent everything we could to investors. So, I mean, it was, yeah, I wasn't, I told my wife, like, look, I'm not going to be that guy that walks away with anything out of this if people are losing money. And so, you know, it wasn't much, but it did it certainly kind of did whatever we could. And so after all that was cleaned up, we moved to Ethiopia thinking it was just for a little while, ended up living there for six years. For the first couple of years while we were there, we started an an orphanage still running today. It's called Elevate Orphan. Just incredible, like brought kids out of this government orphanage and out of these dangerous situations and would put them in what we call forever family. So literally a mom, we would hire widows from the local community and then put them in a house that we rented for them and take care of schooling and all the expenses and then tutoring for the kids and psychologists that could work with the kids and therapists and like trying to just take these kids out of what was terrible, terrible poverty and give them some hope of a future. And it's really cool. And so it's been going since 2009 and many of the kids are now graduated from college and we have doctors and lawyers and like engineers. And it's really cool to see the system works, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you put it up into these kids. It doesn't matter where they came from, they will become something. And so really four months ago, we gave up our role. We were, we, we kind of hands-on directors for a while, and then moved to more of a kind of board chairman role doing mm-hmm. fundraising, but somebody else stepped into that just at the end great. of 2021. So yeah, it was really exciting.
0: That's great. And, and, you know, do you think a lot of these, kids that have become successful through this orphanage, do you think it's because of where they come from, right? It's sort of like a survivor, you know, mentality.
1: Yeah, I mean, those kids are tough. Like, they're just really humbly to hear their stories. I mean, we had kids that had murdered, or sorry, witnessed their parents being murdered. Like, just terrible trauma that you would think would be almost impossible to recover from that they were then able to come out of that and do something with their life. And, you know, I mean, not, not that it's perfect. It sticks with them, but you'd think that it was over, but it's not like their story. There's so much redemption in their story and they're able to to do something, which is really cool.
0: And do they ultimately, I would imagine if, if I was, you know, put myself in those shoes, like ultimately once I would be successful, do they give back and they, and they give back to that orphanage and give back and, you know, early and otherwise,
1: many of them have. They come back and they're mentoring the other kids and tutoring them. And it's really neat to see how they, they all are so thankful that, I mean, they had no family and then this, you know, this is incredible. Yeah. So we were full time doing that for the first three years. But then for the next three years, as we kind of started to te- step back and turn it over to locals to run, well, I started ended up starting businesses in Ethiopia that ended up getting... Real large, so raised a total of 120 million dollars for three different businesses that I found. it brought on a co-founder as well, who he lived in the U.S. and did a bunch of the kind of U.S. side of the operation, and then I led everything in Ethiopia. But it was the one of them was a beef feedlot operation, so we literally would buy young cattle from local farmers, put them on feed, fatten them, process them, and then export that beef to the Middle East. Hmm. That business at the height had 3,000 employees. Just enormous, 8,000 acres of land that I had convinced the prime minister to give us. I mean, it was a big, big business. Had the Norwegian government invested in it, a bunch of private equity funds. And that was a, a just a huge effort, that business. And then also a the medical chain of medical diagnostic centers. And then the biggest one was a, a business building, apartment buildings that we would lease to the U.S. government. And oh, so- wow. Basically, wherever in Africa there was a U.S. embassy, we would go find land nearby, build an apartment building to spec of what the State Department needed for their employees, and then lease it to them. So, really, before we broke ground, we would have a lease in hand, and then probably pretty
0: pretty long-term leases, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I mean, these were ten-year leases, literally signed by the the Secretary of State. Like those were incredible deals. Yeah, but then uh, so we moved back. We moved to Austin. In 2016, our kids were getting older and starting to go to high school, and it didn't really make sense to stay in Ethiopia. And then I traveled back and forth for a couple of years and then sold that business in the end of 2019. So okay. when I sold it, there was a $1.1 billion pipeline of uh, projects that were either under construction or about to start that were the U.S. government had signed up for.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's so Quite a, it, quite a large op- operation. Yeah, for sure. Good, good. From there, what did you um? Did you know when you sold that what you were going to do next, or did you know? Did you say, well, what, you know, I want to stick in real estate, or I want to look at operating businesses, or I just want to yeah, see? Yeah, I mean, real the way estate
1: goes. has always been my passion, and I knew yeah. this was kind of this really fun transition in life. Of it happened right about when I was just almost going to turn forty, and. I felt like, hey, i I'd, I'd learned a lot up till now, and this was time to go build something that was really significant long term. And so did a bunch of research, looked at a bunch of different aspects of the market. It was clear I didn't want to do multifamily. I'd actually built houses in California, sorry, in Texas as well. And I'd done a bunch of different residential over the years, but it, you know, it was like, it's got to be a better corner of the market that we can really go in that there's not as many other people. And it became real clear in, in kind of 2020 through COVID that industrial was the space that I felt like had the most just runway and potential to grow. And then being in Texas, it's I mean, it's just a no-brainer. The state is growing like crazy, pro-business stance. I mean, all, almost all the tenants we rent to are, are moving from Illinois or California or somewhere else and wanting to find something in Texas.
0: Yeah, I feel like Texas and Florida have been the two biggest, uh, obviously, you know, pro-business states that have attracted a lot of businesses and talent from other places, right? California, New York, Chicago being some of the biggest net exporters of, <laughs> I'll say, of right. talent.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: It's really interesting to hear industrial, right? Was was where you wanted to, um, you know, really focus on. And, yeah. you know, is is any of that related to, you know, Amazon or Tesla and some of these big factories or, or distribution centers? Yeah, I mean, What's the typical
1: drives demand and kind of just eats up space. But uh, what we what we typically look at are, are not those tenants in the spaces. So we do a lot of single tenant net lease buildings mm-hmm. that are, you know, say 20 to 100,000 square feet. And, and many of them are third-party logistics or some kind of support that's needed as, as there's this big shift happening to online, right? Everybody's starting to move and move further and further away from, you know, brick and mortar and more towards online. What's needed to support that is an enormous amount of shipping capacity and stock. And, you know, it's just a lot that, that doesn't exist that needs to exist. And we're starting to figure out how to put that in place at the same time. About 3% of all industrial stock is lost every year due to either just demolished because it's too old of a building or conversion into retail or some sort of other space. So there's just a, you know, it's kind of pressure from both ends. There's there's people taking up leasing space and then there's space dropping off. And then there's this just perfect little middle that we've we've found this opportunity and we can buy a, a, you know, 80,000 square foot building for $80 a foot that costs 140 to build new and it's functionally almost identical. You know, so there's this, and I, I don't think it's going to stay this way. I think over time, the, the cost to buy is going to move closer to replacement costs. I don't think replacement costs is going to come down anytime mm-hmm. soon, potentially in 10 years. But right now it's certainly trending that direction. But right now we're just, we're just buying everything we can get our hands on <laughs>
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to ask actually um, the specific strategy, right? And whether you're developing, but that just answers that question, right? If replacement cost is significantly more expensive or even the same, right? It's just easier to buy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's Um, such a simple formula. We go into a neighborhood with population growth, the right economics in place in terms of, you know, labor is not too expensive, logistics are correct, like, easy to get to the freeway, like... Ceiling, you know, you kind of put all these ceiling height and, and doesn't have fire spring. You put all these components in place and it's pretty easy for us to then look at a deal and say, hey, this is a buyer, you know, or, or not. And we're finding almost all the deals that we're buying are off market. And we're finding those literally just by knocking on doors. We've got a team that's out there just constantly looking and talking to, to owners and seeing who wants to sell. And we're finding an incredible success
0: that way. That's interesting. How, how much of that do you think is, you know, the demographics of, you know, the U.S. generally an aging population, right? That you have, do, do you find a lot of these owners of these industrial buildings are kind of ready for retirement?
1: Yeah, quite a few. Gosh, I'm thinking of the buildings we bought recently. About half are that demographic. It's somebody who's seventy years old, maybe built the building twenty years ago, starting to, you know look at inflation and everything else that's going on and saying like, Hey, I actually want to, I don't want to be in this business long-term. Yeah. And then, you know, they sell to us and we're, you know, we're often buying buildings that are either vacant or significantly underleased. They've got mm-hmm. leases in place that are below the current market rate. And so sometimes we're just waiting those tenants out. Sometimes we're buying them out or making offers to get rid of them. Cause it, it makes sense to do that. You know, we basically we're, we're value add without doing a bunch of construction. You know, we have we have the capability. We're, we're doing a remodel on one of our buildings now. We can do that, but that's not actually where we find we can get the most value.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 like value add of you know created by the deal type or the or the you yeah. know tenant replacement and all, all of these soft sort of changes.
1: Yeah, we make basically. I mean, we make money on the buy, which yeah in if you look at multifamily which is a really hot asset class right now it's tough to find a deal you know first of all if you if you go find a 50 unit apartment building that's for sale there're 50 other offers competing yeah. for it and they're going to push your cap rate down and so there's certainly money to be made but it's in sweat equity right you've got to take yeah. that 1970s building and replace all your plumbing and electrical and kind of start over new cabinets and flooring and paint and everything and by the time you're done with it, yes, you you certainly can add value. You know, you can buy a three cap and do something to it. That does, that strategy does work. But it's almost like those markets, because they're getting so much attention, you're not able to kind of make money on the buy, where industrial, mm-hmm. there's just so few. I mean, often we'll go approach an owner who has not been approached yet, who's got a 100,000 square foot asset that's got multiple tenants in there. I mean, it's a perfect asset in a growing area. and Nobody's asked him, "Hey, do you want to sell?" And when we show up with an offer in hand and we know what we can pay for it, I mean, there there are deals to be had.
0: That's interesting. And
1: Until I say this, until I say this on a podcast, then we're going to get. I actually was just <laughs> going to say that it's.
0: You know, the, are you worried about competition? Are you worried about people? And there's clearly other players in the market, right in, in the in the industrial space. But are you yeah. worried about other people kind of doing what you're doing?
1: eventually all opportunities normalize over time, right? The, mm-hmm. you Think of the market as just this big kind of ocean of things rise and fall and different things happen. I don't expect that this is going to stay this way forever. I've always found that I've had a lot of people be really generous with me, giving me advice and sharing secrets. And that's been really helpful in my journey. And so I just feel that's the best way to approach it is I'm happy to Share this with anybody, and so far we've never been outbid by somebody who learned because we told them what to do. But <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that day will come, and we'll be sorry we did it.
0: it. It'll happen, I'm sure, at some point. But yeah, that's always the you know the approach that I've always taken is is uh, it's it's funny. It's like the 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 most simple thing, right? To to gain confidence and trust from both investors, counterparties, market participants, is be honest. Right And and it's something yeah. that people, you know, some people get caught up in the rat race and I, I feel like they forget that. Like if you're honest and, and going back to what happened to you in around 2008 and your investors that stuck with you, yeah. it's because you're honest, it's because you're upfront and because you handled it properly. Yeah. You know, there's other people that wouldn't do that. Yeah, it's true. So Harbor Capital, how many people do you have these days working for Harbor and 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 what do you think the next kind of five years look like for you guys?
1: yeah so we really didn't get started till q1 of 2021 so we're a year old now you know i've done 400 million dollars worth of real estate transactions in my career so it, it, it's not new in many of the you know different asset class but i'd, I'd done some industrial before so it's not all brand new so i kind of have the cheat codes to get us to get us accelerated faster we bought 30 million dollars worth in our first year our goal is to buy hundred million dollars worth in 2022 growing to you know at the latest we want to get to a billion in aum by 2030 uh, we have five on the team right now are actively growing we're actually just hired a search firm and are looking for a coo right now one of the things that i've found you know like i said is being the being the dumbest guy in the room i've had several i've had the the opportunity to have several just really special relationships over my career with fantastic coos who were able to kind of take the vision that I had put together and implement it, and be really this kind of strategy sounding board for me, and so that's worked really well. So that's where we're at right now is is working to to conf, continue to fill out the team and add to the five that we have. I think we'll level off at twenty staff or so. I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to build a, a massive staff, you know, kind of staff heavy environment. So we'll, you know, right now we're doing property management, but we'll start to farm that out as we get bigger. It's easy on a single tenant at lease, triple net yeah. lease deal to do property management. But once we get into these kind of more tenants and, you know, there's more complexity into those deals and we'll start to, to farm that out. And we won't, we won't do that long-term. You know, I, I've done property management before and it's not a great uh, business to be in there are others who can do that better than us. And we can stay focused on really just decision-making for the asset. You know, we'll do asset management, but we'll turn over property management. But yeah, I mean, growing, uh, it's been an exciting journey so far, but we got green lights ahead. It's, it's, it's fun.
0: That's great. And if anyone listening wants to get a hold of you, you know, or get a hold of Harbor Capital, they can learn more. You have a, fund or do you do deal by deal or both? So we do
1: deal by deal um our website is harborcap.com i think we'll continue to do deal by deal long term i i really enjoy the i've done both i've done funds over the years as well but i enjoy the just the process of having to make the argument for every single deal that we do i want to go out to investors i want i want to my team to know that if they don't do a great deal then investors aren't going to fund it i don't want them to have the pressure of oh we've got you know, 100 million dollars raised that you've got to get out there or else we have to send it back. I think that the I think that we are more intrinsically aligned with our investors if we do a fund if, sorry if we do a deal by deal instead of a fund.
0: Yeah, that makes sense and you know it's sort of interesting because you you have you know the deal first and then you money raise for that deal as opposed to a fund you're raising money and then you as you said you're forced to put it out sometimes and things that you don't really want to buy. Yeah. Interesting. So Another thing, if, um, you know, I know you're, you're, you said you stepped away from Elevate Orphan, but if anyone's yeah. interested in learning more about that and donating potentially, how yeah. would they, how would they find them? Yeah,
1: for sure. So it's ElevateOrphan.org is the website. Still going strong. Adding more. I just actually yesterday talked to the, on the ground directors, become a really good friend of mine, Thomas, and they're adding more kids and growing. And, and yeah, it's exciting to see that. It's one of those, like, I, I told my wife the other day it's one of those like both of us she worked so hard on putting that together It's, it's one of the things that we will always be most proud of in our lives is having just weathered that I mean it was tough it was really hard to get legal and set up and hire a team and learn how to operate in a new culture and there was so many things that just made that a really really tough journey but so rewarding at the end of the day
0: yeah, sounds like it. Well, congratulations yeah. so far, Levi, on the uh, on HarborCap and and yep. on uh, Elevate Orphan and and all your other successes over the years. It's uh, a yeah. very interesting story, and I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the other thing I would say is come find me on Twitter. It's at Levi James here. I just have way too much fun. I, th- I feel like I think in short bursts like that, and so I'm always on there just talking about stuff. So it, it's become really the best tool for us to connect with investors and people who you know i mean gosh i feel like i learn a lot more on there than i actually bring to the table but yeah it's a really neat platform lately great yeah
0: thanks appreciate it and that's it for today's show i hope you found it insightful and entertaining if you did give us a like follow or subscribe on your favorite streaming or social media platform at fun podcast or funviewspodcast.com. Till until next time